Let's turn to the Gospel of Mark, second Gospel, second book in the New Testament, Mark chapter 8. And I would like for you, if you would, to join me in the last part of that chapter. We're going to look at something that happened. I don't know if you looked at the back of the bulletin, the title of tonight's sermon, Get Behind Me, Satan. So maybe a, maybe a passage is familiar to you. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. You see that expression, that, that command, and it's, it's interesting that you've got Jesus saying this to somebody, one of his, one of his apostles, one of, his, you know, one of the inner three of, of all 12 of them. You know, when, um, when you look at this story in Mark 8, this is recorded elsewhere, but we're looking at Mark's account of it tonight, but when you, when you look at the story, you recognize something that's pretty fascinating. Now, you may, you may be aware of this, but... Every book in the New Testament was connected in some way to an apostle. That's, that's, how it, that's how these books got to be a part of the Bible, because the New Testament books had some sort of a connection to an apostle. Now, when you look at the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you got Matthew that was written by an apostle, Matthew. You got John that was written by an apostle. And then you've got Luke that was connected to the apostle Paul. And then you got Mark. Now, Mark's gospel account was written by... I mean, Luke was written by Luke, and Luke was closely associated with Paul. Mark was written by John Mark, who was closely associated with the Apostle Peter. And that's why Mark's gospel account was included in your, in your Bible. And there are other reasons for it, but that was one of them. I, I point that out because when you read what we're going to read in just a second, you're going to see that this is one of those times where Peter is portrayed, the Apostle Peter, one of the twelve, and even within that 12, one of the inner three, one of the closest three to Jesus. So you're going to see in our story tonight and in other places that this is one of those accounts where Peter, an apostle, was portrayed in a negative light. And that's another mark of inspiration with the New Testament documents, especially the gospel accounts, is that you don't have all the, you know, the apostles just portrayed in, in all these wonderful ways, like they never made any mistakes or whatever. It shows them, paints their portraits, warts and all, as the saying goes. And this is one of those cases where Mark, Mark was closely associated with the Apostle Peter, but when he's telling about Jesus, when he's telling these stories associated with Jesus, he doesn't, he doesn't whitewash them. You know, he doesn't act like this didn't happen or it happened somehow differently. Uh, he, he tells it like it was. And this is, this is a pretty harsh account. This is one of those times where Peter, I mean, of all the times in the New Testament, this is the, this is the harshest one as far as Jesus toward one of the apostles. Uh, he speaks very directly to Peter. He, he, and I'll, we'll, we'll do a little, bit of words, a little bit of a word study here in a second because I want you to see how, how, how strong this was. It's, it's pretty interesting. Okay, so with that aside, let's look at Mark 8. Read with me if you would. Follow along. I'm going to be reading, uh, starting in verse 31 of Mark chapter 8. Okay? And he began to teach them. That's Jesus. Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer Many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. But what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed 
when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, the, <clears throat> this account, isn't this fascinating? I know some of you, many of you in this room have read this maybe many times before. Some of you maybe haven't read it in a while. Maybe some of you haven't read it ever. And depending on your familiarity with it, it'll shock you to a lesser or greater degree. If you are somebody who's hearing this for the first time, you know about Jesus and you know that Peter was one of the apostles and you've got Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends, basically rebuking him, getting on to him, saying, Jesus, you're, you're wrong about this. Then this might, this might come as a shock to you. It's, it's a fascinating story because you've got Peter basically telling Jesus he was wrong. And uh, that's just that's interesting, isn't it? Can you imagine if you're having a conversation with Jesus and Jesus says something and you say, no, actually, Lord, you got it wrong. Can you imagine doing that? Now, that's part of the problem here. Part of the problem is Peter doesn't fully know whom he's talking to. And, and I'll show you how we know that based on some things happening here in our, in our text. Okay, so let's think about it for a few minutes. And then we'll, as we go through this, we'll try to think about how it relates to the things that you and I deal with on a daily basis. But, so what you've got here, let's, let's set the context, okay? You know what I've found over the years, and I mention this to you sometimes, but one of, one of the things I've found is any story that you read in the Bible, you need to, you need to spend a little bit of time with what's before it and what's right after it. And that's why we read the part right after it. I didn't read the part that's right before it. Now, I want you to look at this because it's interesting how this progresses, how these things are happening. So in verses 27 through 30, we didn't read this part, you've got another pretty familiar story. We usually read Matthew's account of it, Matthew 16, uh, but Mark's got an abbreviated account of the same thing. And it's when Jesus was coming into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples a question, who do people say that I am? Mark, like Mark does with a lot of things, he takes what Matthew expounds on and Mark shrinks it down to a few verses. So, and he gives an abbreviated account. Some, some say John the Baptist, some Elijah, others one of the prophets. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. Now, probably you might be thinking of Matthew 16 where Jesus goes on. He says, blessed are you, remember this? Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this unto you, but my Father who's in heaven. And I say also unto you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom. And he goes on. He says some other stuff. But Mark's not interested in all that. Mark just wants you to know what happened because he's about to tell you how it relates to something else. And so, so he tells the story. And the story is that you got this encounter where Jesus basically says, who do people say that I am? They gave a couple of quick answers. Jesus said, who do you say? Peter said, you're the Christ. And then Jesus immediately said this. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. That's brought some little chagrin over the years. Like, why would Jesus, who came to save the world, not want people to talk about it? It's called the Messianic Secret. Scholars write about this. It's called the Messianic Secret, especially in Mark. Mark does more of this than Matthew, Luke, or John. So the Messianic Secret, why do you have this? Different reasons why this may have been true. Uh, Jesus may have encouraged the disciples not to speak at this point about him. Uh, one reason may have been that he didn't, want, uh, he didn't want his popularity to get so high so quickly that he wasn't able to visit a lot of the villages and places in Judah that he wanted to go to. So he didn't want all the crowds preventing his doing what he came to do. So that's possibly one reason. I think in our account here, though, that we've got another subtle reason why Jesus said, 
don't tell anybody this, okay, right now. Don't tell anybody this. Don't. And it's strong. By the way, the word, he strictly charged them, the ESV says in verse 30. He strictly charged them. That's a strong word. It's not like Jesus said, oh, by the way, you might not want to say anything about this. No, it's not like that. This is, if we can kind of communicate the meaning of this verb in, in, in English, he, he, he looks at them and he says, listen, listen, listen to what I'm saying. Do not tell anyone. All right, that's, that's what that word, that verb means there. Don't tell anyone, okay? So it's a strong, it's, it's almost, it almost carries with it this force of, of, of a rebuke. And I'm going to show you how it connects to what we're talking about here in a second. So he almost like rebuked them, like got onto them. I understand, oh, don't, don't tell anybody about this. Now, why do you think, just as you think about this, why do you think he may not have wanted them to tell anybody who he was yet? Peter had just given the right answer. You are the Christ. Let me, let me ask you something else. When Peter said, you are the Christ, did Peter know what he was saying? Just think about these, some of these questions. Did he know what he was saying when he said, you're the Christ? You're the anointed one. What did Peter think when he, when he said, you're the Christ? Did he, did, he, did he think of what we think of with the Christ, the fulfillment of the promises to David, the Son of God, the God incarnate, a lot of the phrases we use when we're talking about it? You probably know, I'm, I'm hinting at the answer to that is, no, Peter didn't exactly know what he was confessing when he said, you are the Christ. I don't think he understood all the implications of that. And I'll show you why that is the case. All right, so that happens. All right, you got, so you got that... Got that before you. And, and then the very next section is the section we read. So immediately Jesus says, all right, just again, set the stage. You're the Christ, Peter said. And Jesus says, all right, do not tell anyone. Then the very next verse says, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. All right, so... So Peter says, you're the Christ. Jesus said, don't tell anybody. And then he says, you know what, what, what this means. Son of man, I, I'm going to be killed. And I'm going I'm to rise again after the third day. I'm going to suffer a lot of things. I'm going to be killed and then I'm going to be resurrected. You know that when Peter said, you're the Christ, he still had in his mind another conception of what it meant to be Messiah, what it meant to be the Christ. He didn't, he didn't think what we think, what we know based on the entire revelation of the Bible. He didn't have all that. He had the Old Testament and he had a couple of years of Jesus, uh, but he didn't have all this. And so when he said, you're the Christ, he didn't really understand what he was saying. He had a little bit of a twisted kind of Jewish, first century Jewish notion of what the Messiah was going to be like. And one of the things that they had in their mind at this time about the Messiah was that the Messiah... Number one, he didn't suffer. He didn't lose battles. Nobody killed him. And he certainly, he certainly wouldn't have to experience rejection by the elders and the chief priests. This is going to happen. The, the Messiah is not going to be like that. So when Peter says, you are the Messiah, the Christ, he didn't understand all that went, went along with that. They didn't have this understanding of Isaiah 53 where Isaiah says, the suffering servant is going to be led like a sheep to the slaughter and all that language that we, that we know now foreshadowed what Jesus would endure. So Peter didn't have all that. So here's what I'm getting to. Why do you think Jesus may not have wanted Peter and the others to tell 
the story about who Jesus was yet. Because they didn't understand who he was. They didn't get it. They didn't get it. Now, I know he gave the right answer verbally, but he didn't get what that meant. He had in his mind this idea of a, of an, a very much of a Davidic kind of king. Like, you know, David reigning over Judah and Israel and, 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 and Solomon and all the glory and, and the chariots and the horses and the armies and the throne and reigning over peoples and all this. That's what Peter had in mind or some version of that. I don't know to what extent Peter had been kind of disillusioned of that kind of thinking, but it certainly wasn't out of his mind yet. So we had a lot of things. That's why then, you see this? That's why Jesus said, don't tell anybody, number one. And then in the next paragraph, the paragraph we're, we're talking about, Jesus starts telling them this. And he tells them this again and again because they didn't want to, they really had a hard time hearing this. Starts telling them about suffering, about death, and about resurrection, which they just kind of went over their heads in a lot of ways. And then Peter does what we read he did. So he's just confessed him as the Christ. Jesus says, I'm going to suffer. And Peter, I mean, look at the text. See, you know, verse 32, Jesus said this plainly. And Peter took him aside. Can you imagine this? I mean, I don't want to over-dramatize the thing, but it's just it's almost funny to think about this. Peter, hearing Jesus talk about this, and Peter's just getting more and more disappointed. Jesus finishes, and Peter's like, I need to talk to you privately. He gets him aside privately, and he starts fussing at him. That, that, that word there, this may be of interest to you, when it says that he took him aside and began to rebuke him, that's the same word that was used in verse 30, if, you're, if you like that sort of thing. He strictly charged them to tell no one about him. It is a word that means to rebuke. So you've got a child that's disobeying for the 40 hundredth time, and you do what? Rebuke him or her strongly, maybe what this word means it's used a lot in fact it's used about 10 times in the gospel of mark it's used let me, let me just give you let me give an example a couple of examples one time mark mark one this is the first time it's used in mark uh, there's a, a demon that sends someone and jesus rebuked him and said be silent come out of him it's used in mark four when jesus calms the, the sea with the storm the wind and all that he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. It's used later on in Mark 9, in the, in the next chapter, verse 25, he rebuked the unclean spirit. Anyway, that's an example. It's used quite a bit in Matthew, Luke, and John as well. But it's just, just get this. It's a strong word, all right? And so he's just charged them. He's rebuked them. Don't tell anybody. Then Jesus says, The Son of Man's going to suffer, be killed, and be resurrected. And Peter says, Let me talk to you aside. And, and Peter rebukes the Lord. Now, why does he rebuke him? Because in Peter's mind, the Messiah is not going to suffer. He's not going to suffer. He's going to win. He's not going to lose. He's going to be king, not a servant. He's going to reign over. He's going to, you know, dominate the Roman Empire. He's not going to be subject to it. He's going to do what David did. He's going to win battles, not lose them. So this... The whole notion of Jesus as a suffering servant was counterintuitive to what everything they believed about Messiah. And, and so Peter couldn't, 
couldn't handle it. Peter probably was thinking the same thing as, as his peers were. He's just the one we know, you know, you know who Peter was. He wasn't going to have a thought that he didn't express. And so he went ahead and said what everybody else was thinking. This can't happen. You, you cannot do this. You cannot do this. That's, that's the end of it. And if you do that, then if, you, if you're going to get killed, then that's the end of the homosiah talk. I mean, that's all over. So you, you get an impression. So back to that messianic secret thing. Do you get an idea here why the Lord may have wanted them not to tell? Because they didn't understand it. They were going to preach the wrong Messiah. You don't want them preaching the wrong Messiah. I know he gave the right answer on some level, but his, his understanding wasn't what it should have been. So he began to rebuke him. I don't know what all he said, but it didn't go over well. Verse 33, turning and seeing his disciples. I, I love the, you know, the description from Mark here. My guess is he turned and he looked at the disciples and he saw in their eyes what? They agreed with Peter. And so he's about to do this in front of them all. Uh, anyway, he, he turned and saw his disciples and he rebuked Peter. So that's the third time in just a handful of verses here where that same verb in the Greek text is used. Translated, what, charge the first time and rebuke the second and third times. Uh, but he, he takes Peter and he says, you know, he rebukes him and with no uncertain terms, he says, you know, get behind me, Satan. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's notion of the Messiah was all wrong at this point. He's going to get it right. I mean, the, Lord's, the Lord knows how this is going to turn out. He's, he's not frustrated with where Peter's going. He's just in the moment. He's disappointed maybe in Peter's being unwilling to grasp the connection between the various scriptures that he later would and how the Old Testament actually did predict a suffering servant, Messiah, and not just a reigning, conquering Messiah. That he's going to reign and conquer through serving. His reigning and conquering is going to be of a spiritual nature and not of a physical nature. He's not going to take over earthly kingdoms through the sword, but rather he's going to permeate these kingdoms with a servant's towel. Just all, all these things. He's, as somebody said, Jesus is going into the store and he's changing all the price tags. Uh, he's, he's changing everything. What the, what the world values he devalues. What the world devalues, he puts a high price tag on. So the world doesn't think service is important. Jesus says it's all about service. The world thinks that reigning and being powerful and successful and all those things are important. Jesus says those things don't really matter that much at all. So everything is, everything's being turned. It's the upside down kingdom, as some people have called, called, called it. Um, just an interesting progression here when you study the life of Christ. So he turns to the disciples, he says, get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. You're thinking carnally, you're thinking earthly, you're thinking fleshly, and I'm trying to get you to think spiritually, eternally. And about what really matters. So this is a slow-going slow going deal. The disciples don't really learn the lesson. Not very quickly. You've got this happening again and again. Jesus is going to predict his, his death and uh, he's going to do it over and over. In fact, look at Mark 9, just, just as an example. This is Mark 9, 31. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he's killed, after three days he will rise. But when they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Isn't that weird to you? Don't you find that? Why wouldn't they just have... Well, this is Jesus we're talking to. Why wouldn't they just accept it? When something completely goes against your worldview, you don't hear it right. Not the first time. 
maybe not the second time or the third time or the fourth time, when it completely subverts the way that you see the world, it's hard for you to grasp. Think about that in a lot of different ways, the way that we hear and the way that we perceive all shaped by a particular worldview. And so that's what's going on here. It took time. And I think that's why Jesus spent so much time with them for, you know, three, three and a half, four years. Jesus was, was with them and slowly bringing them along, being patient with them and helping them to, helping their worldview to change. It took some time for that. But even the night before he died. So at the end of Jesus' ministry, Peter took out his sword and he was ready to fight. Why? Because his notion of the Messiah was a, was a fighting one. Messiah's going to need soldiers to fight the battles, and I've got my sword and I'm ready. And he cut off the high priest's servant's ear. Remember that. So even, even the eve of the Lord's death, Peter wasn't really where he needed to be. And until after the resurrection and the Holy Spirit came over him and the other apostles, did Peter's eyes finally become open. And we've got the blessing of that through the revelation that we now can see what God intended. So get behind me, Satan. I don't know exactly why he says that. You know, I've always taught that to say, don't get between me and the cross, and maybe that's what it, what it means. Don't get between me and the cross. I'm going to the cross, and, and you're, get behind me. You know, and he goes on and he talks about discipleship. So I still think that's probably the best reading here. Don't get in front of me. Don't get between me and the cross. Get behind me and follow me to the cross. So get behind me, Satan. Or it may also just have a, just have this rebuking kind of connotation that you're acting like Satan right now trying to thwart my reason for being here. So don't do that. I cannot, I cannot let you do that. You're thinking carnally. Then he goes on and he talks about discipleship. And really, I don't want to focus so much. I know there's so much in the last paragraph there that you could talk about, but I really wanted to focus in on this, like this kernel in the middle. You've got the confession of Jesus. Then you've got this encounter between Jesus and Peter. And then you've got the words right after that, which I do want you to see the connection because he chastises Peter and then it seems as if he calls the crowd over to him and he says, you understand, if you come after me, it's not going to be a bed of roses. It's going to be tough. This discipleship thing is not going to be easy. So I want to disabuse you of the notion that you've got this idea that being a disciple of mine is going to be, you know, we take over Rome and... and we're going to get our independence back politically and economically and in every way from, from Rome. Don't, don't think that. That's not the way this kingdom's going to work. It's not going to be about that. If you're going to be one of my disciples, you need to understand that what I just told Peter and the others is true of all of you. I'm going to the cross to die, and if you're one of my disciples, there's a good chance the same thing's going to happen to you. So you need to understand, this is my kingdom. I'm going to achieve victory and life through suffering and death. Now, here's some of the reading I was, some of the kind of the practical reading, uh, people applying this text to us. This is one of the points that, I, that came through again and again in some of the stuff I was looking at. And, and they were suggesting that this principle is one that really affects all of life. A lot of times God does his best work. God, God accomplishes his purposes in ways that you and I wouldn't have chosen, in paths that we would not have walked had God not taken us there. And it's often the path of suffering, the path of, of, um, of, of patience, uh, the path of, of death, so that God may bring about life. There's a pattern in the way God works in people. 
and he illustrated it most clearly and beautifully in the life of his own son, Jesus accomplished victory through suffering and death and resurrection. And we accomplish victory through suffering and death and ultimately through resurrection. So that same principle is being enacted in our lives today. And so he goes on and he says, that's what's going to happen. But yet, if you choose to follow me, you will gain the whole world. If you choose not to follow me, you'll lose your soul. And that word soul, don't think of it like a disembodied spirit. That, that word soul really means yourself. You, you're going to lose who you are. You're going to lose who God created you to be. And um, anyway, then he, then he points to the end. He said, the Son of Man, if you're, if you're ashamed of me and of my word to this adulterous and sinful generation, then I'm going to be ashamed of you in the end. And, and again, in context, you see what he's probably saying? Peter had this idea of who the Messiah was, and that's the Messiah he wanted to preach. And Jesus says, no, that's not the right Messiah. Don't preach that Messiah until you're ready to preach it right. You're not going to preach it at all. I'm not going to let you. Uh, and, and so then he goes on and he says, if you're ashamed of me, in other words, if you're ashamed of the suffering servant Messiah, if you're ashamed of a servant, of a, of a Messiah who suffers and dies the most horrendous and the most shameful death that anybody could even imagine in that time, if you're ashamed of that kind of Messiah, then you, you can't follow me because that's the, that's the kind of Messiah I am. I'm one who will suffer and I will not call that angel to destroy these people. I will not do that. I will not rescue myself through miraculous powers. Satan said, you know, cast yourself down off the temple. An angel will save you. Jesus is not going to take the easy route. He's not going to take the easy route. He's going to the scourging and he's going to the cross and he's going to be resurrected. And if you're ashamed of that kind of Messiah, then you don't have any place in my kingdom. So the same is true of us. We need to present Christ as he is, not as we wish him to be. And so some of his words are going to make us uncomfortable. They're going to make us squirm. They're going to be difficult to teach. They're going to be difficult to practice. But nonetheless, our obligation is to present the Messiah as he is, not as we wish he was if we were creating one. And that's what Peter's doing in our text here. If you're not a Christian tonight, we invite you to come to the Messiah. Come to Jesus, um, the one, the one who, is, who is, not the one you want him to be. And I think if we're honest, you know, if we're perfectly honest about this, Maybe Jesus isn't, if I can say this respectfully, from a human perspective, we would have created a different kind of Messiah. Um, we would have created one, if we had the option, we would have created one that, that didn't require everything he requires, that didn't say some of the hard things he said. We, we would have done it differently. But that's, not our, that's not our responsibility. And it was not a, we don't have that chance, of course. We follow the Jesus who is, and it's the one who has claimed us for himself, the one who is the very epitome of love and grace and forgiveness. If you want to come to him tonight, then we invite you to come. On his terms, you come submitting yourself to him as, as he is, as your Lord, as your Savior, putting him on in the waters of baptism. His blood washes over you in the waters of baptism to cleanse you of your past, your sinfulness, and everything, everything you've done that's violated his will. And you rise out of the water... A, a newborn Christian, a babe in Christ. What a beautiful thing that is. We'd love to help you with that tonight. Maybe you need to come back to him tonight because you haven't lived a life of submission to the Messiah. We invite you to come. Let's stand and sing this song.